WHIVFM.org. We're honoring independent voices at 102.3 FM, WHIVLP, New Orleans. Comrades, you are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is your weekly Good Morning Comrade. That's right, folks. Uh, got Jeff in the studio. Robert, conspicuous by his absence, I've been back for one week and I've already taken back over the show. Unbelievable. Uh, now, actually, he's on jury duty today. Uh, really, uh, he can't make it out. Um, so, uh, and, and Aaron's actually out of town. So, uh, we actually have a special guest today. Uh, we have Raul, what's going on, Raul? Not much, Jeff. How you doing, man? Good, good, good. Speak directly into that microphone. Bring it a little bit closer. Oh, uh, uh, uh. Okay. There you go. Yep. There you go. Nope. There you got it. Good technique. All right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, and today we're going to actually talk a little bit about, um, we're going to talk about wide-ranging conversation, things that involve uh, uh, immigration policy and also the experience of immigration, uh, because Raul... Uh, is actually from Peru, and he's and we can actually even talk about the um, instability there as well if you're interested. But uh, yeah, sure. It's but um, I guess if you want to really briefly introduce yourself, go right ahead. Uh, so I'm Raúl Vidaurre. I am a documentarian. Been uh, yeah. making docs since uh, 2007, and uh, now I work in communications yeah. for the one of the largest property services unions in uh, in the labor movement. So very excited. Yeah, we're glad to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, um, so just to kind of like kick it off, uh, you want you wanted to talk about some some specific things about immigration. If you want to just sort of take it away in terms of like what your background is and your experiences with it, and we can kind of get into some of the uh, the nuts and bolts as we go. All right, cool. So yeah, so I mean, when we were thinking about what we would discuss, um, that was. I think to me, it's. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been. I grew up. I was born in Peru. I uh, lived in Venezuela for a few years and um, then actually moved to the States in 87. I was seven years old at the time. So I migrated initially as a kid with my parents. Uh, my parents, you know, brought me over. Uh, my dad has had, his fa- had a family or whatever. And, um, and, and I had this experience of migrating as a child without really realizing, you know, everything that went on behind the scenes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2009, I moved to Peru uh, with my ex-wife. And um, lived there for about 10 years and came back late 2018. Now myself as head of household um, with my new wife and, <laughs> and daughter. And, um, and there's a, the experience was completely different, right? It was, mm-hmm. it's, it was two completely different migration experiences. One from, you know, being a child and not understanding everything that was going on. And also the process as a, a new immigrant, a new migrant, you know, my, we came with... Uh, my dad came and, and did some kind of a business visa and, you know, my, my mother at the time had a, uh, she couldn't work, I think, because she had like a visa that was like, she was accompanying the business person. So she wasn't, Oh yeah, yeah. this weird, like gray There's there's a lot of really like restrictive labor rules specifically when it comes to status. Right, right, right. Exactly. And then we came in as, as students, um, and had we stayed that way, you know, once once we came of age, once we turned 18, we probably, or, or we stopped studying, 
mm-hmm. we would have lost our status completely, right? Um, we became so basically, res- you have to go to school, or you're out of the country, or you're or you're here like technically illegally, and you can essentially be, um, you know, collected by border patrol and and sent sent packing. Right, and I know people that have had that have had those situations that have been in those situations. Right, I know people that growing up, um, you know, once they turned eighteen or they realized they had to go to college, for example, mm-hmm. they, that's when they actually realized that hey, they didn't really have status, but they grew up here. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so like they couldn't go to college, or they had to pay as as foreigners, or they it was it's 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 insane, right? That's a lot of those kids that were, were benefiting from DACA as well, right? The the deferred action, which is something we can get into a little bit later. Right, but deferred action came much after. I mean, I'm, I'm I was born in 1980, yeah. right? So like I'm yeah, DACA about wasn't until the 2000s, right? Like and in so, the until so, Obama administration, exactly. So people that came up and or I grew up with, you know, in '98 lost their status and how do they move forward right and so i know i know people that move back to latin america because of that um i also know people that um just simply couldn't study or had to remain illegally for a while and it's it's terrible right and so so hard to get a job of course and so that was that was just growing up i never realized everything that went into that right thankfully you know I, i eventually became a u.s citizen and um when i went back to peru and decided to come back as a u.s citizen um, it really bringing my wife and, mm-hmm. and daughter over, they didn't have papers here, right? So going through the immigration process now, coming back, migrating, I mean, people, um, there's something to be said about why people migrate too, right? Like mm-hmm. if you really, if I, if you really go back to what it, like the reasons why I migrated personally, right? Um, in 1987 in Peru, uh, well, from 1980 to 2000 in Peru, we had what, what they call the internal armed conflict, right? So it was the Peruvian government was battling basically terrorist groups that were, some were uh, Marxist groups, mm-hmm. um, and, um, or they, in theory they were Marxist groups. Sure. And, um, and there was a lot of terrorism. And so none of that really came into the capital, into Lima, into the, the capital of Peru, until the late 80s. But it started mid to late 70s while we had a military dictatorship in Peru, right? Which is its own political yeah, situation. Let's, yeah, let's not even get into that, right? So, um, but in 87, one of the first bombs that actually blew up in Lima blew up next to my house. Yeah. Right? Like there was a car bomb that blew up next to my house. There was a bank next to the building that we lived in. And inside the bank, there was a government office. And that's what they were targeting. It wasn't a huge bomb, but it was an explosion, right? It's big um, enough to scare yeah, the you know, exactly. pants off of you. So when that happened, my dad said, okay, this hit way too close to home, literally. And so he decided to pack up and leave. And so... Um, we came up, we came to the States because of that. And I never realized the severity of that, right? Um, and there's, a, there's something to be said about also like what that does to your mind state, right? In 1992 in, in Miami, um, Hurricane Andrew passed through, right? And the military was actually present in Miami. And, um, and I remember, you know, being a 12-year-old kid and, and my classmates would always be surprised or, or would be in shock or would be... Um, I don't know. It was it was kind of exciting, maybe, to mm-hmm. see military personnel on the streets with machine guns, basically. Right? That's why like, they oh, do they, it. That's why they, they do that. <laughs> but they're like, oh, they have machine guns. Yeah. Right? And it was like, and some of them were like, oh, this is weird. This is crazy. And some of them were like, oh, this is really cool, right? But like those kind of parades are a demonstration of like we have military superiority. We got everything under control. Don't worry, citizen. Like that kind of thing, right? It's a it's a form of it's a form of propaganda, really. I mean, it is. I think, but but to the point is, I remember some kids thinking like it was just uh, both of those things, right? It was like uh-huh. it was really cool, or like this is kind of scary that there's machine guns like <laughs> next to our school, right? You know? 
Um, but to me, that was normal because growing up in Peru, there were machine guns. Yeah. Like you walk into a bank, there was a guy with a machine gun. You walked into, you know, a supermarket even, there was a guy with a machine gun. Like that's what security guys had, mm -hmm. machine guns. You know what I mean? Like that was normal for me. So, um, so anyway, so, so to think about why people migrate, like from that, if you, if you look at it from that perspective, from my personal perspective, we migrated literally because there was a war going on in my country. Yeah. A bomb blew up next to my house. And it was either you stay and you live through that or you get the hell out of Dodge, right? And, yeah. and so having the opportunity, that's what my father decided to do. And, and I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful that he did because I know a lot of people that did grow up in the 80, late 80s and 90s in Peru. And, you know, it wasn't easy. Um, I mean, there was my dad's birthday was actually on the... Uh, on the anniversary of the Shining Path. And the Shining Path was one of the terrorist groups. Mm -hmm. And every year for their anniversary, they would actually blow up the electrical towers. Like, oh. We lived on the 12th story of a building, okay? So I remember, I remember countless days where my father would actually have to walk up 12 stories carrying stuff on his birthday, walk back down 12 stories, pick up my sister, who was, you know, a year younger, and carry her up 12 stories. Thankfully, he was in good shape, right? Right. Um, well, I'll get you in good shape, won't it? <laughs> but this was, but this was, this is not normal. Like, this isn't what people should be living through, right? And, right. and this happens all over the world, unfortunately. Um, and, and it is, it is a, a lot of, you know, a lot of people migrate because of the, they're in these situations. Mm -hmm. You see it in Central America, you see it in South America. You're, I mean, you're seeing it now in Ukraine, right? Like, these things happen. So, um, People, there's a war happening here. I don't want to stay here. Right, exactly. Um, and I can, I, I have the ability to leave, so I will. And, you know, unfortunately, not everybody has that that opportunity. Or people will have to uh, uh, escape through different means, through less legal means, even. Right, exactly. And there's and there's there's something that I, I never realized the severity of that, of what that meant to have a bomb blow up next to your house, mm -hmm. until I moved back to Peru. And when I moved back to Peru, I worked on a project. That I, so I've done a lot of documentary work but a lot of production work as well mm -hmm. and there's a museum in downtown oh, well not downtown Lima but anyway one of the districts in Lima that's called uh, Lugar de la Memoria right it's, uh, so it's the place for memory basically um, and what it does is it tells the story of the what's again called the internal armed conflict between that was established to be between 1980 and 2000 right that's the time frame that they've established so it's a museum that tells the story of what happened in that time um, it was over 60,000 people that died during that, mm -hmm. during that time period, right? And it wasn't, what's really interesting about that museum is that everything that, that, that happened is actually pretty well told. Like the story is really well told because it tells you what the terrorists did, but it also tells you the damage that the government did. The whole story. The not, whole story. Not, not like it, I mean, I'm not sure who, uh, who is, you know, the founders and the funders of these, uh, this, this, Thing, but 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 the idea that they're they're attempting to at, at least uh, the way you're describing it to tell the story as completely as possible is like that's the I mean well I that know. is that is a that's an important thing because yeah you're not just saying like there's a reason that there's terrorists there's a reason that there's unrest and it's um, you know not to make excuses for the uh, for what they're doing but the part of the reason is because these governments a lot of times will be you, know, you said it was a military dictatorship I mean there have to be you know when you have a military dictatorship that military is going to be used for something yeah 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 and 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 not only that the 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 way they actually countered it um, we had a president that that started in 1990. And he became, he was a very populist president and he came into power without people really understanding how he came into power. Mm -hmm. um, 
but then he actually was the one that was able to do away with terrorism, right? And so from having lived in the having, I just want to know how was he able to do that? How was he able to do what? To do away with terrorism, like through the Iron Fist or through policy yes. carrot and stick or no, what? it was through an Iron Fist. Like, just, and that's what it was. Is he mm-hmm. ended up becoming a dictator, right? He yeah. actually changed the country's constitution so that he could run for a second term because we only had one term mm-hmm. of presidents, and so he changed the constitution, ran for a second term, and when his term was up, he said, well, this is technically my first term under the new constitution. And, oh, and again, come on, dude. Right? So he ran again and won. Yeah, of right? course so he So he did. actually won three times. Mm-hmm. Um, the third time, though, thankfully, he was ousted about a year in and he ended up fleeing the country and resigning via fax from Japan. Right? Mm-hmm. His name is Alberto Fujimori. He is actually in jail. He is one of, and to get into lo, like and current, uh, Fujimori was the daughter of. Uh, he, he had a daughter that ran against Castillo, who just also was deposed as well. Yeah, she's ran. She's run for for president like three or four times and lost every time because nobody likes her. Because yeah. honestly, um, honestly, the legacy that Fujimori left behind is, even though it flipped the country into uh, into a lot of growth, economic growth. Um, and the middle class did grow. Um, there was a lot of pain behind mm-hmm. everything that happened, right? 60,000 people died and it wasn't by, at the hands of the terrorists. It was at the hands, a lot of it was at the hands of the military. So back to the museum. Circle back, yeah, right, sorry. Back to the museum, that's actually what, um, what, the, what the story tells, right? And it was, uh, speak about the funding. The funding was actually from the German government and it was, uh, it was they have funds for these types of things, having lived through the Holocaust apparently. Yeah. So they, they fund these types of museums and the memory museums. Um, in Chile, there's one as well. Um, and, uh, and anyway, it was, they actually gave the money to, uh, to the UN to, to manage because they didn't trust the Peruvian government to manage it properly. Well, that makes um, sense. <laughs> right. And, and so, so everything that's in that museum, I produced. Everything that's in there, I mean, and every, every video that's in there, I produced. Wow. I, I'm not saying I made it, but like there was, you know, I was involved in You're the process. You were part of it, yeah. Um, every piece that's there, I was involved in the process as well, reaching out to the artists and making sure that they got their payments and that they got the pieces in and that it was all put together. And so when I was doing all that work and interviewing a lot of people, um, I actually realized there's, a, there's um, a concept called displacement, right? So when you're in these uh, situations of war, for example, um, People are displaced. People are displaced by the armies coming in. People are displaced by, like right now, right? People are being displaced from, by the Russian army coming into Ukraine or whatever. So these, this forces people to move. So mm-hmm. a lot of the people in Peru moved from the Amazon jungle. In, 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 like a, in a sociology class, you would call that push factors. Or a history class, you would call those push factors. Okay. <laughs> well, displacement is what they, mm-hmm. what they categorize yeah. it down, down there as. So people have been displaced from the Amazon and the Andes to the coast, yeah. right? And so I believe, and don't quote me on the numbers, but I believe it's something like only about 30% of the people that were displaced during this time period actually ever went back to their, to their home area, right? Because, because they made new homes. Because they made new homes, because they no longer had anything to go back to, because either all of their family members had been killed or their homes had been destroyed, or they had they literally had nothing to go back to, so they just stayed where they were and created, you know... They got a life. job, they got a home, they, they literally right. just set up had, shop in a new place. Yeah, and so when I was doing this work, that's when I realized the severity of, hey, a bomb blew up next to my house. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I had a different opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, was able to... But in, in the end, I was displaced from Peru and, and ended up moving to the States, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't... 
that's the reason why I migrated. That's the reason why we migrated as kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or my parents, you know, brought us over here. So, so that I mean, to the point, that's things like that are why people migrate. Now, coming back as a again as a U.S. citizen with my wife, with my two kids, um, the experience is completely different. Can we talk about that just a moment? I have uh, a little bit of, uh, just want to talk about um, La Rola Nola. So tune in Saturdays, 4 to 6. Today, Mid-City Martha, uh, the host of La Rola Nola. Uh, La Rola Nola highlights New Orleans and uh, Latin music using the intersectionality of music, activism, and commentary for immigrant justice. La Rola Nola, Saturdays at 4 p.m. exclusively on 102.3 FM and streaming worldwide at whivfm.org. So you were just about to talk about uh, your experience experience, uh, especially with your family, um, go right ahead. Yeah. So, um, I guess we can backtrack a little, right. And, and talk about what's, ha- what's been happening. We can get a little bit into Peruvian politics, right. But the last five years or six, I think it's the last six years, we've had seven presidents in Peru, right. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the reason is that's too many presidents. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's insane. But um, the reason is there's a lot of corruption, right? The, the government's the government's a mess. Congress is a mess, um, and so you have uh, this this situation that hasn't, in theory, affected the economy as much. They're still counting growth um, in their numbers, but uh, it, there's a lot of political turmoil, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 honestly, the, when you're talking about the economy, you're talking about macroeconomics. You're not talking about day to day life for working people. No, you're right? talking about gross gr- gross domestic product and maintaining stability to do that in the mil- in the essentially the way that main that stability is maintained is often enough through violence. Right, right. So so what's happened is you have a corrupt government, a corrupt Congress that has actually been led mostly by no other than uh, uh, Keiko Fujimori, who is Alberto Fujimori's daughter. And so she's run for president three times and lost, but she won Congress. Mm-hmm. So as the leader of her party, she dedicated the last 10 years of her life basically to you know, make sure that nobody could govern. And so- And she's done a good job of that. She's done a hell of a good job, right? <laughs> seven, seven pres- and, and of those seven presidents, I believe six of them are in jail. Like this is just this yeah. is crazy, right? So, so she's still got clout. Significant cloud. Yes, exactly. But she can't win the popular vote because there's such a negative sentiment against her, right? Like, oh, let's not talk about local politics and who that who I would think of. <laughs> but, but, um, but yes. So, so there's this situation that happens, and and even though macroeconomically the country's still progressing, working people are 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 feeling that, yeah. right? Are feeling that burden. So, I mean. You know, I was an independent uh, filmmaker, basically documentary filmmaker, and and uh, worked with a lot of different NGOs all over Latin America for years. Um, and you know that work dries up very easily because NGOs feel you know get defunded basically yeah. uh, when situations like that happen, right? Uh, we saw it here, uh, you know, through the Trump administration, a lot mm-hmm. of NGOs were defunded, right? Lost their funds. Um, so. Same type of thing happened, and uh, my wife was also a TV producer. Um, and, you know, she would make commercials and that's really where she would make more money than, right. than TV itself. And, um, and that also dried up, right? And if we look at the people that are around us, and I'm not talking about, we are mid to upper middle class in Peru, right? I'm, like, we're okay. We can get by. Yeah. We you're, can, not, you're not exactly like hoping that your next meal is just going to like miraculously appear, right? right? Exactly. So, but... But that's not that's not the bulk of people in Peru. Right? Correct. That's not the bulk of the population. So, so we um so 
we started feeling the the economic downturn and we started feeling that pressure and um and i mean in my head i always knew that we would come back to the states or i would come but mm. i would come back to the states with my son who was actually born in miami um and and you know bring my my wife and my daughter with us but um but the when was kind of up in the air right sure and so that put pressure on us to say hey you know let's jump let's let's jump ahead with this let's move our plans up we moved our plans up almost four or five years mm-hmm. um just because you know things weren't going as smoothly as they should have we had we stayed behind had we stayed behind the pandemic would have hit us over there peru locked it's locked we're on total lockdown for almost eight months yeah people complain here about lockdown because they like closed schools for a couple of months or whatever and <laughs> like that that is like literally essentially martial law yeah. in a lot of ways yeah yeah it was eight months where people could only one person from your household could actually leave the house for essential things like going to the supermarket or you know specific things or the pharmacy or whatever but my son for example who you know was down there with his mom basically didn't leave his room for eight months when i was able to finally bring him up here um he, we would walk a block and he his legs would hurt yeah. Right. Because of the, because he's not used to walking. Literally. Right. Literally, he was like sitting in his chair, like playing video games for eight months, basically, or doing online classes or whatever. Yeah. But, but in the end, he was stuck in his house without being able to leave for eight at months. a critical point of development in his life as well. Like, I mean, not to be like to moralize around it. It's just different than what you experienced or what I experienced. Not to say, not even a sign of value to it. Yeah. 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 No. Absolutely. And so, so you have this 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 situation where had we stayed behind. Honestly, even being mid to upper middle class, I don't think we would have made it. Honestly, mm-hmm. like we, I don't, I don't know how we would have gotten by those eight months because mm-hmm. I could have done maybe a month or two, but eight months, you know? Yeah, that's a long and, time. And coming back to it again, any advertising, any commercial work, any NGOs, like all of that was done. There Shut was no down. work. So all of the people that I worked with, uh, you know, were were suffering and are still suffering the consequences <clears throat> of that, right? And so, so we decided to migrate again. And, and that experience, you would think, as a U.S. citizen, wouldn't be so difficult. Right. And plus, you have something to compare it to as well, which is also interesting. Right. And so you would think it wouldn't be so difficult. However, it costs us th- thousands of dollars uh-huh. for me to be able to get my wife and my daughter, you know, the, the residency. Right? Yeah, and it, even like things that you wouldn't even think would cost like lots of money as well, right? I mean, making photocopies. I spent like I think two hundred dollars on photocopies. Wow, like it's insane. But that's what you need to present. You need to present all this documentation. You need to gather all this documentation. And we did it on our own, mind you. I didn't hire a lawyer. Like I have an aunt that's a paralegal, and so she reviewed the stuff. Yeah, but I didn't she have to hire out. a lawyer. Had I had to hire a lawyer, thousands probably, more. It probably would have been fifteen thousand dollars. Who the hell has fifteen thousand dollars to, you know? go through a normal immigration process and if you're talking about people from like you know Central America or Venezuela like that are coming through the border or Cuba you know and in this country people like to take like to say well why aren't they following the why aren't they immigrating to this country in the quote-unquote like correct way or the right way or the legal way well I mean less quotes on the legal part because but like <laughs> um but but the reason is because it's one, onerous in terms of just all the stuff you have to do, and two, onerous from the perspective of it costs a lot of money. And also three, if you're if you're fleeing political instability where, I mean, 
you have bombs going off at your, you know, right next right. door to your house or something, you're getting out of there. You ain't waiting around for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it, and and you know, if you if you want to talk about Venezuela, like the the Venezuelan government, it, you can't even get a passport easily to go out or yeah, go, to, yeah. To, like if you don't have a passport, getting a passport from Venezuela is 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 a huge huge undertaking, mm-hmm. right? It can take years, or you or whatever. Maybe you have to pay someone off. Or there's, there, I'm sure there's ways around. There's always but, there's but, always that. But yeah. I know people from Venezuela that you know, can't get a passport or, or are in the States now and they have to renew their passport. And that, that even that is like a huge feat, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, if you talk about the ways these immigration uh, policies actually affect people mm-hmm. in order to be, to be accessible, mm-hmm. I mean, how do we make them accessible? Because they need to be more accessible because you can't expect, again, as a U.S. citizen, I came back and I did the paperwork myself, Right. And it still cost me thousands of dollars. And that was very difficult. Like when I came back, I didn't have work. My wife couldn't work because, hey, she doesn't have papers. Mm-hmm. Right? So I came back. We rented a little, you know, two-bedroom in, you know, close to downtown Miami, um, which was where we found something affordable. And it, and it was also somewhere where you could actually walk in Miami because that's almost impossible in Miami, if you know Miami. Not a walking city. Yeah. Not a walking city. You need a car. So we, I knew we were only going to have one car, you know. So I needed somewhere, somewhere where I knew my wife could actually walk to the store if she needed to, where my daughter could actually take the bus to go to school if she needed to. So those are things you have to keep in mind. And not everybody has the, the capacity or the ability to do things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And even still, that wasn't easy, right? When I, when, I, when I initially came back, I started reaching out to a lot of people that I knew that were either had worked at NGOs or had worked at TV. And... and you know, I started, I started doing Uber and, li- and Lyft in the morning. So I would get up at five in the morning, four in the morning, um, leave my house between five and six, right? Thankfully, we lived in a centric area where there were some hotels around. So immediately I would just turn on the thing and the app at my house and, uh, and you know, I'd get up. This thing. was during COVID? No, this was pre-COVID. Okay. This was early, early 2019 to... So right before. Yeah. So it was 2019. Um, and, and, it, and I mean, I did it for about three or four months. Um, that and that's I, hard work too, by the way, not to like cut you off. I just want to like really dilate on that. Cause I, I mean, I, I can't help myself. I talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. I talk to my, my drivers when I, when I take cars all the time, I mean, uh, and they just like talk about how they, you know, work, you know, 12 hour days and they're lucky to make their car payments sometimes. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it is, it's a lot of work. And, and they have and, standards by which they have to have nice cars. There's a whole sidebar conversation, but like it, it's, it's, it's not an easy job is my point. Yeah. Well, I mean, recently I, you know, I said something about the gig economy and the gig, I, 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 growing up to me, it was like, oh, you'd get a gig. Right. And it was like, you'd get, and, and I grew up in film in, in the, sure. and that's how a lot of these things are like, you're a freelancer. Right. Yeah. And it was something where, you know, you could, you could get by and you could work, you know, you wouldn't work every day, but the work that you picked up would be enough to get you by now. Because they paid. Right. Now it's become this gig economy is this thing that's just like, it's minute by minute, you're making penny by, you're just yeah. racking up penny by penny, you know, and barely getting by half the time. So, um, but that's what I was doing. I was, I was, I was driving from like five or six in the morning till about 10 or 11 AM where I could actually schedule an appointment with someone to have a coffee and sit down and be like, Hey, what can I do? Where can I find work? Where, you know, and that's how, that's how I started trying to just, I needed to make at least $80, $90 a day to be able to pay rent at the end of the month right. know, and not eat up the little savings I had. So, um, so that wasn't easy either, you know, and picking up little gigs here and there, wherever I could. Um, yeah, but, but that wasn't easy. And again, it's one income for a four person household, you know, 
in Miami, which has now gotten ridiculously expensive. Back then, it, was, it wasn't cheap. People always think that, oh, Florida's cheap. Yeah, maybe some of Florida, but Miami has never been cheap. Miami's a real city. <laughs> Miami is a big city. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I, I don't know, just like the way that, I don't know, I hear people, especially like in New York, and in this city, we have a lot of... Uh, we have a lot of just like high cost of housing and things like that in terms of like, like I don't, it's just like a phenomenon that's everywhere, I guess is my point. That is a that is a broadly a broadly known and broadly felt phenomenon. You know? Yeah. The cost of housing just going up. Yeah. I mean, my my neighbor behind me just <clears throat> moved. He uh, he was paying, I think, something like twelve hundred dollars a month uh, for a one bedroom up until. They just raised his rent to over to about twenty five hundred, so they nearly doubled his rent or doubled Yikes. his. Yikes! It's insane. You can't you can't do that, you know. Yeah. Um. But that's that's just the housing market right now. Right. Which is terrible. Um. I don't know where I was going with this anymore. So real quick, um, <laughs> just I have a um, little PSA about emergency plans here. Uh, experts agree that having an emergency plan and an emergency kit are the best ways to be prepared for severe weather. Preparing an emergency plan for your family is not complicated. If your family is prepared when disaster strikes, having a plan in advance will help you know how to contact one another and get back together after the storm passes. Emergency supplies and first aid kit are easy to assemble and smart ways you can prepare for severe weather. Another community service reminder from your friends at 102.3 WHIV-FM. So uh, you were talking about the, you know, the, your, your, your time as a, um, a, a essentially an Uber Lyft driver and then so and, and also, you know, trying to find whatever work that you could. Where did you go from there? Uh, so, I mean, what ended up happening was uh, I picked up a gig at Nickelodeon. A friend of mine called me. Uh, he was a uh, head of uh, post-production for a Latin American TV show called Club 57. And he called me one day and he said, hey, I know this is like way beneath your pay grade, but do you want to be an assistant editor? Um, and I said, how much does it pay? And he, you know, he gave me the, the price and I was like, what's the, resp I mean, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it was, it was, first off, it was a three month gig. So that helped me, you know, kind of level out a bit. Um, but it also uh, was very stress free, you know, coming in as an editor for, or, or, or head of post-production, which I've done before, mm -hmm. you have all this weight on your shoulders as an assistant editor. It was just like, I mean, what do you guys need? What can I help with? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And just like making sure that everything's just lining Run up properly. Smoothly. It's just, yeah, that's basically it. So it was, um, it was actually exciting to, mm -hmm. to, to, to be able to Because there's a problem, relax. you can go fix it. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, it was really, it was very easy. Um, thank you, Oscar, for that. But, um, but shout once, out to Oscar. Shout out to Oscar. Once that was done, um, again, I went back to, hey, what do I do? So I started doing the same thing, you know, and, and, and started driving. And whereas my previous experience had been that I would make about clean, you know, after tolls and, and gas and everything, about 15 to $18 an hour, I came back and I was barely making 12, barely Dude. making 10. And so, and I don't know if it was a seasonal thing or if it was because I had dropped off for three months or, you know, or, if, they had or, if, or if these gig operators had changed the algorithm for, by which the amount of money you make is less. Exactly. And, and, and uh, to, to the point you made earlier, I speak to whenever I get an Uber and, and I get an, an office. I can't help myself. I see somebody in the car, you know, I'm feeling okay. I'll talk to them, you know? Yeah. 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 I have the same thing. So I start talking to them and I ask them, you know, oftentimes I ask them how much they're making. Um, oftentimes I ask them what kind of issues they're having. You know, we start talking about these things and, and, uh, 
And some of them have learned how to actually work within the system. Um, and I think that's great. So they're actually making more they're money, than, work more them, money yeah. than others. But not everybody has these things or not everybody has the ability to say, hey, how does like actually think think that way? Yeah. And so they just take every ride and, and you know, some of them are, are barely making the 15. Some of them are barely making 12. Some of them tell me they're making 20, 30. But oftentimes what I find is that they say, yeah, I aim at a certain, like a goal, a set goal a day. So it's like, I want to make $200 a day at least. Yeah. But they'll work 12 to 16 hours. Yeah. Driving in Miami. Like, With the cost of gas to what it is. And you mentioned tolls and all this other stuff. And traffic in Miami is insane, man. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's it's definitely not an easy job to that point. You know, to Mm -hmm. the point you made. It's not an easy job. It's very stressful. And it's very strenuous on your, it's physically, I mean, people might think, oh, driving isn't, it's physically straining. It's work. It is. It is tough. You're tense all the time. You're, you're aware of all your, you have to be extremely aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're responsible for people. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. You need to be safe. You need to be paying attention. It's 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 mental work as much as it is physical work. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so then I actually did a um, a little uh, lobby day visit to Tallahassee with a an NGO um, called Unidos US. They do great work all over the states, and they have a lot of affiliates. Um, and basically, uh, they do uh, a lot of stuff related to either education or uh, immigration. Um, I worked on this thing. They were trying to pass some education-related um, laws in Tallahassee for the state of Florida, and so uh, protections for students. And so um, we went up to Tallahassee, shot this thing, and when they were going to show it, I asked them to please let me know where they would show it, because to me, I know they had 17 affiliates in Florida, right? And to me, I was like, okay, that's 17 prospective clients. So I want to <laughs> be there when it shows to be able to talk to them and, and see if something comes out of that, okay. right? And so. I did. Uh, I went. It played well. People loved it. Uh, spoke to a couple of people. Had some good contacts. Had some good leads. And I met this uh, this woman um, who uh, is just wonderful. And uh, and we hit it off. And so um, we started talking. It turns out that she was actually her parents were from Peru as well. So she was you know there was this, like, something to talk about. Connection. <laughs> and um, uh, her name is Shayla. And so. Shayla and I hit it off and she said, hey, I'm going to put you in touch with my comms person, um, you know, because I think you guys should get together. Maybe you can we can work on something together. And to me, I was like, OK, great. This is a great a good lead for a gig. Right. Three months later, I get an email and uh, from this comms person back saying, you know, hey, um, are you uh, do you have five minutes to talk? Basically, um, I was, you know, basically doing nothing at home. And I said, yeah. oh, give me 30 minutes. Yeah. Just because I didn't want to feel like I didn't want anybody to know that I was doing nothing at home. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah. Just to kind of like give the image of like, yeah, let me just, uh, let me wrap this very important thing that I'm doing up <laughs> yeah. and stop playing that video game or whatever. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so anyway, so I get on this call and, um, and basically I was offered a job in, uh, at this labor union, right. And, and, and I knew nothing about labor. I knew nothing about the labor movement. Um, I mean, I knew my birthday is actually tomorrow. It's uh, MLK Day, so happy birthday! So I know I knew about MLK. I knew about his connection to labor to some degree, um, but there were very, very few things that I knew about the labor movement because honestly, the labor movement is not taught in our classrooms across the United States. In America or in most countries either. Yeah, and that's. I mean, it's definitely done intentionally. um, It's a way to you know kill worker power, but. Um, Impossible to do. <laughs> yeah. 
but that's what they're trying. They're right? trying. So, yeah. so, so there's a reason why we don't get those those lessons in in, yeah. in the classroom. Um, and so we, uh, so so I was asked to come on board and, and actually work in house. And to me, that was a difficult decision because I had been independent since '07, so it had been already like 12 years. That I mean, in Peru, there was a point in time where I, I employed 10 people. You know, mm-hmm. like I so it's uh it was a different it was a it was a strange shift in my head you know not to pick up like a three-month gig at nickelodeon which i knew had it was just like a three-month gig and that was it um but to actually take on a full-time job but i but you know spoke to my wife about it and it was it just it felt like the right thing to do because it would give us stability and in my head initially obviously i said "Eh, i'll do it for six months see what happens if i like it cool and if i don't eh, there goes that right yeah um great benefits i mean you know, as as it stood, my uh, my wife and daughter had just gotten their 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 paperwork. They had just gotten their residency and their social security, and so I could finally apply for health insurance for them. Because before that, I couldn't even get health insurance for them because they didn't have a social security number. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, okay, great. So, but now, and how do you go see a doctor? How do you? Oh, it's so expensive. It's crazy. How do you get any kind of medical? emergency taken care of right like you're not a millionaire <laughs> yeah yeah right right most people aren't right so so with this job came these benefits and came health insurance for my family mm-hmm. right and so that to me was like okay this is interesting let's see what happens with mm-hmm. this and so i started working um for uh this union and and honestly if i can uh if I can sum it up, I mean, if I can sum, I've been there for three years now. If I can, so six months are long gone. But if I, <laughs> if I can sum it up, honestly, the reason I stayed and the reason why I'm here and the reason why I think the labor movement is probably the most, if not the most, one of the most important pillars of our society is that it is the way that we can actually push all of us forward. Mm-hmm. Society as a whole forward, right? And, and, and I saw that in that my work, my like putting out a tweet, creating a video, shooting pictures of actions, of workers taking action, has, I've seen how that has had a direct effect on working people from immediately, from mm-hmm. one day to the next. And even there was a point, there was a point in time where we, workers were actually walking back um, after a three day strike in Miami and they were told that they couldn't go back to work. Um, which is clearly illegal, right? What kind of workers was this? Uh, janitorial workers. Okay. And so the, when we, you know, put the machinery to work, mm-hmm. basically 45 minutes later, they got a text saying, oops, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean that, right? And so, and so not only did they get their jobs back, but, or well, they never, technically never really lost them. Right. But um, they also got pay raises. I mean, there were, there were people that didn't have access to parking, and they ended up getting park- access to parking. Mm-hmm. Um, th- their workloads were reduced, and this was immediate, right? It was it was immediate because of their action. They took a three day. They went on a three day strike. That's not easy. It's not easy for anyone, right? But the fact that we could actually help support them because that's our job, right? As part of labor union staffers, our job is solely to support the workers. Yeah, like our job is just to make sure that they have what they need when they need it and that they get the best outcome from whatever it is action that they decide to take. And so that's amazing. Like I've worked in education and with NGOs since 07, right? I started, I actually started working with NGOs in 07 with MTV. 
Mm-hmm. We created a docu-series called Agents of Change where we would highlight Agente de Cambio for the Latin American market. We would highlight young people doing important stuff all over Latin America to change their environment. So I've worked with people that do all sorts of thing, all, things all over Latin America. But most of these projects are long-term projects, right? And so like if you're working in education... I mean, you got to wait 30 years to see if the kid doesn't, you know, turn out like it doesn't. Uh, and, and honestly, like uh, if you've if you've taught uh, for any amount of time, I mean, I've had kids like literally you'll just hear horror stories like I, I had it. I mean, you know, some kid that you taught 10 years ago committed suicide or something like that. Are there and the, you, you only hear about the ones that have have that have had um bad experiences, unfortunately, mm-hmm. more than, than you would be the ones that have like, oh, they go and just live a normal life. You know, yeah. you just hear, you hear about the, the, the worst situations too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, uh, yeah, there's a, that brings something to mind, but, um, that not, yeah, not going to get into that right now. It was a tough thing to swallow, but, um, but if you work on these projects, they're also long-term and you don't really see the immediate impact on people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's just sometimes you do. Sometimes you'll see, like you just mentioned, uh, boom, fifteen minutes, and you know workers are, you know. But that but happens in the labor movement. Yeah, you don't see that in education. In real life, yeah. You don't see or that. Or not you don't real see life. That. It is real life. But you know what I mean. In, in other situations, in other dynamics, in other in other settings. Yeah. So, so to me, that's that's what's thrilling to me, and that's what's kept me here, and that's what, I think that's the fuel of my to my fire. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's 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 seeing the change. I mean. Very powerful, it's, like, like it's literally. Am- it's amazing, and you build these beautiful relationships, and you hear the like, you know, as a documentarian, it's like, I'm all about listening to people's stories. Like, I love listening to people's stories. I love mm-hmm. learning about people and, and and meeting them and seeing who they are and and being able to come into their homes and having them tell me about their families and 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 you build these relationships. Like, we have 175,000 members up and down the East Coast. Like, that's a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. And day to day, we are working to impact their lives positively, and it's just. I, I get text messages, like good morning text messages from members, you know, and like memes <laughs> that they send me on my phone. And it's just, it's beautiful. And obviously, you know, you reply back and you say hi and, and you talk every once in a while. But it's because you've, be, you've, you've become a part of their life. You've become a part of their family. And that's like, I feel like I have 175,000 family members, now, yeah. you know, um, in the States. And that's beautiful. I had never felt that before. And th- I think that that's the power behind the labor movement is, mm-hmm. is everybody feeling that sense of family and unity, honestly, I mean, union, right? But yeah. um, how, do we, how, do we, how do we make it so that more people now understand that and so that more people understand the power of that and so that more people actually join, right? Mm-hmm. Because labor unions are what, 6%, 9%, 7 10%, like around like 9, 10% in America. Public sector is around like 30% unionization. Private sector is like, six percent or seven percent something very very like horribly low right exactly which is which Uh, it's a result of policy in the united states no question and and just complete i mean culture of america and like a lot of these you know bs like lines that we get fed even in school i mean one of the funny things just to kind of like not get too uh too sidetracked here but one of the funniest things that I thought was just completely just like I am completely black built on the education system is when I started teaching like middle school, I discovered <laughs> that there is an entire unit in the Louisiana curriculum. And I believe it's copied in other states, uh, just dedicated to Steve jobs. <laughs> it what? is literally the theme. The central theme of the unit is Steve jobs. And one of the central texts is some like, 
some um, speech that he gave to some college, like, you know, before he died or whatever. It was, it's so outrageous to me. Just that, like, I can't, I can't think of any better example of, like, like canonizing someone in an official way um, and, and, and like in such a propagandistic way, I mean, you're teaching this to sixth graders. You're basically telling them that they can all be a Steve Jobs or whatever, you know, without any of the context. Right. That's wild. Yeah. That's just wild. There's a, there's a, to, and that, that builds anti-solidarity in a lot of ways too. That's the point. Right, right. Exactly. Because if you're but, Steve Jobs, you could be a zillionaire. But, but I remember growing up, like, like I always had like an entrepreneurial spirit. Right. And, yeah. and now like. Come looking back on the last 40 years of my life, it's like, where the hell did that come from? Now, my dad has always been somewhat independent. Mm -hmm. And so I always attributed it to that. But I think there is some element of, okay, was I kind of fed like this is the way because, because it is a way to divide us and it is a way to split us up, right? Like mm -hmm. we can't all be entrepreneurs. Yes, some of us will be. And some of us will create great things. But not everybody will. And not everybody can. And you don't have okay. to. <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't have to happen, right? Like you can maybe accomplish a lot more if you actually created a co-op. In fact, right? none of these people <laughs> could create the great things that they themselves did as individual actors without workers doing it. Yeah. It's not possible to have Steve Jobs without having the millions of Apple employees and also workers in like in essentially like sweatshops that build uh, PCB boards, motherboards, and all these components that go into the computers. Like that's, it's like the, 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 the idea that the individual is able to make this possible, like alone by themselves is like, it, it fits perfectly in terms of like the American narrative. And it's, it even is it's something that goes beyond before America, but it's something that really America grabbed onto, but like, and it's, I don't know. It, it, it's just a, it's, it's one of those, one of those like fables, one of those fairy tales that like, that, that really messes with people's brains. You know what I mean? Like that could be me. Yeah. There's a, I remember there's a, this brought it to mind. There's this Radiohead video of like, it's a split screen video. I don't know if you've seen it or you remember that, but there's like, I think it's like a kid in the States, like going through their day and a kid in somewhere in, I think it's Asia going through their day, like working at a factory and blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. And it's just like this juxtaposition of these two images. And to the point, it's like, it, it's the Apple workers. It's also mm -hmm. the factory workers over. Oh yeah. Asia. I was just it's one like, example. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, um, I think there's also something to be said. And I, and I think this is a point that, I, that I, um, we, we should talk about is yes, there are, you know, 30, 40 years of, of anti-labor policy in this country, right? Oh, yeah. Since the, uh, Adolf Reed puts it the best, actually. He said that uh, the reason that they have social democracy and strong unionization in Europe and not here is because after the war, uh, after World War II, um, Europe was largely destroyed. And in America, we got rich off of it. Capital was fat and happy and just, like, look, looking to essentially just, like, hunt. And it, it was a generations long pro successful generations long project to just destroy the working class and the middle class. Right. Right. And so there's also something to be said about that. That has a place. I, I'm no labor historian. Clearly. Sure. I mean, I, I, I started learning about labor and labor history three years ago when I started at this job, like sure. that's my reality. Right. And I've learned a lot, thankfully, and I've read a lot and I'm, and I'm really happy to have 
to, to see these things and to learn about this history. Um, but there's also something I think really important or a really important point to talk about how, how split people are on this, on this subject even alone, right? I mean, the fact that you have um, more progressive or lefty organizations calling, you know, big unions, uh, you know, uh, or calling, quote, big labor. Uh, you big know, labor. Uh, <laughs> like the, the, One of my favorite the terms. Enemy, the enemy of, of the working class. Yeah, or the enemy right? of progress, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's... I remember that one specifically when it came to, like, the Sanders election, um, when it was uh, the culinary union in Nevada when they made the, in my opinion, very bad decision, though I can see how they came to the conclusion, to, like, soft support Biden. Uh, and part of that was because they negotiated a hell of a health care deal with, uh, with the casinos out there. And, you know, Medicare for all is something that could provide some kind of instability to that now. In my view, that would actually make it so that there would be, uh, a, you know, better negotiation for, you know, they've been in a position to negotiate for other things. Um, but obviously the leadership of that union didn't see it that way. But like they made, a, uh, in my opinion, an awful decision. And then you see people on Twitter saying that culinary 226 is against is enemies of the working class or whatever, the leaders of it or whatever. And it's just like, I don't know, man, maybe they're just doing a bad job on this particular thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so there's specific issues that you actually face, mm -hmm. right? And it's and it's it's. I think it's um. There's so much on the table, mm -hmm. right? There really is. There's so much on the table, and and I think that what I personally like about the work that we do is that we really try to look at the individual as a whole, and that means not only looking at what's in their contract or what's better for them specifically, but what's better for their families, mm -hmm. what's better for their communities, and how we can actually help shape all that and push that forward. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, that's super powerful, right? Because you're not just talking about the, con the one specific contract. Mm -hmm. Now on the contract, you're obviously, you know, I'm not, I'm not involved in that. Of course. Thankfully, uh, at least not now. Um, <laughs> but I have seen negotiations and, and, and I have, I have been at the bargaining table with, with members and it's mm -hmm. just, it's a beautiful thing to see the members take ownership of what their contract actually looks like yeah. and be, be the decision makers at the table. Like that's, and I know that that maybe isn't how it happens across the board, but to the point I was trying to make before, it's like just because it doesn't happen across the board doesn't mean that that's what should be happening and that there aren't, you know, people that are actually in unions that are actually doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, democracy is the backbone of what unions should be. You know, the workers need to have a say in what happens in their union. Mm -hmm. And the only way that happens is if the workers are actually involved. Yeah. And I think that... You can't make them get involved. No. No, but they have to be involved. And so I love seeing a bargaining table with, you know, 20 members sitting sitting there with some of union leadership or local leadership and seeing them actually make the agenda and mm -hmm. say what's important to them and say what they can and can't bring back to their coworkers. And sitting right? across the table from their boss and being at least for a minute equal. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I, you know, in, in these, in meeting some of our members I've had these conversations and I've asked them what that feels like and it's just like it's nothing like it <laughs> yeah it's just they feel they feel like finally they can actually get something done right and that and 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 that their bosses at that point are even afraid of what they can actually accomplish right and I think that's powerful because that's that's taking your power back right that's literally taking your power back and I think that's just such a 
no, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, just sort of like to to wrap us up, we have about five minutes left. Um, just sort of like your, I guess, final thoughts in terms of you know what are some. You, you posed a question earlier of like what are some of the things that we can do, kind of looking forward, you know, as people who are either affiliated with unions who work with unions or who are just supporters or even groups like um, even groups like DSA or whatever like what can these sort of like supposedly aligned you know groups and 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 types of people do to advance you know advance workers and support one another it's a um, tough question yeah well I'm not I mean no DSA um you can leave them out of it. No, no, no like, just because. There's, but I think DSA is a good example of, uh-huh. from what I know, from what I understand, because I've not been involved in DSA. Sure, so, sure. You know? But from what I understand, even within DSA, there's a struggle of like, oh, who's pushing further left and who's pr- and who's not, and, and like there's and, all this back mm-hmm. and forth, and and I think that's what's ha- that's what happens across the. It's like a good example of what happens across the board. Too much internal, like right. It's like why the hell over, aren't yeah. we all working together? In the yeah. end, we're like yes, maybe you want to push further. Great. Okay, mm-hmm. we can. We know that our capacity is to push this far. Mm-hmm. All right. So is that is that really going to stop you from mm-hmm. keeping pushing? No, you keep pushing forward. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it, unless we all start working together, we're going to just keep moving back. Yeah, you have to engage. Because in the end, we're fighting against each other to, in, to ideally or in the long run do the same thing, right? Is raise people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Like that's the end goal is raise people out of poverty, right? Is to some degree... Redistribute the, the, the wealth that, yeah. is, that has been accumulated by such a small number of people in this country mm-hmm. now, right? And that control so much. And, and it's not, you know, it's not, oh, don't, you don't have to hate the billionaires, but, you know, you also don't have to aspire to be a billionaire mm-hmm. because that's not your reality. You might never get there. Mm-hmm. Your reality is today. And unless you come together with somebody else that's also dealing with your reality and help push that forward, then sorry, you're never going to get to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Like it's just not going to happen because the billionaires are just going to keep growing. Yeah, their wealth, you know. So, I think that's the goal. The idea is if, unless we all work together, and and I mean, I think there's also a point to be said about organizations that aren't in these spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a conversation we have to have about you know last year's labor notes, and I, I definitely think that we that's yeah, we, we we definitely need to circle back to that. Yeah. Um, but um, we need to get Joan on. Okay. Yeah, we need to get Joan on, and I think that would be that would be a great discussion because I think that's that's where this this conversation needs to happen mm. because I think it's an understanding that we can't be hating on each other. We can't be putting each other down in order because you can be order, critical. In order to move forward, you, yes, by you all have means, to be, be critical. critical. Be crit- when somebody screws up, call them out on it. Yeah, absolutely, right? Absolutely, call them out on it. But in the end, if your goal is to get to from point A to point B, and my goal is also to get to point B eventually, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just know that there might be more steps. In my, in my trajectory, there might be more steps to get to point B. You want to push it all the way? Keep pushing it all the way. But mm-hmm. work with me. Work with what we know we can attain. And, and unless we are in those spaces as well, you know, there's just, we just have to learn to work together. I think sure. that's, that's, really, that's really the biggest, our biggest uh, obstacle, yeah. honestly. Is We're getting in each other's way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's some what situations happens, too, right? yeah. Well, uh, thanks again, Raul. And we could have, I mean, this could, discussion could continue in so many different directions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I start to like think about where, 
like like how um, unions have historically engaged with like elected officials and things like that. That's a whole yeah. discussion that we could potentially have in the future. Um, but but thank you so much for uh, joining us on Good Morning Comrade. Anything you want to say before we go? Is there any way we can follow uh, you maybe on Twitter? Yeah, it's R-A-Z-U-M-A-R-X, Razu Marx. Um, on Twitter, Instagram, yeah. every, everywhere. com is also, I think you can see some video work there. Cool. Um, thank you for having me, man. This of is, course, this man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and yeah, next time, anytime we can make this happen. So, uh, uh, yeah, thank you for listening to Good Morning Comrade, everybody. Uh, and we love you. Goodbye.